Hi, I'm Nana. And I'm Bonquillo. And this is African.American. This is a show about children of African immigrants and African immigrants themselves living in the United States. And today our subject is, I don't know why I'm having trouble saying that. Last time I talked about special snowflakes and whatever. Maybe I should just go back to riffing you for your... <laughs> no, no. I've gotten, I've gotten old. <laughs> Every episode is a different subject, and today's subject is a new different subject. <laughs> uh, we're, 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 we're doing something actually a little bit different, um, and we are talking about siblinghood. And instead of talking about it ourselves, we brought on two actual siblings. So we have Yasmin, who has been, I think, been on every season. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Competing with charity there. I think. Oh, yeah. Her and it's always the Ghanaians, right? The black stars. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Um, so we have our returning guest, Yasmin, here, as well as her lovely sister, Katsat. And they are going to be talking about siblinghood um, in honor of Sibling Day. So we are going to kind of leave the floor to the two of them to to chat take it away ladies <laughs> thank you for having us um so i'm yasmin and i'm cosette we are sisters and um we're of Ghanaian descent mm-hmm. born and raised in pg yep. uh so let's just go through some of these questions so okay let me ask you cosette so we're both grown now and I know for me, when people ask, where are you from? That question ends up being super loaded. Like, where are you from? As in, where are your parents from? Or where are you from? As in, where were you born? Or like, so I'm curious. When people ask you where you're from, what, what do you say back to them? I always start off saying, like, I'm Ghanaian, but I was born in Bowie or, or I was raised in Bowie or Largo, Maryland. But I feel like growing up, I think as like a first generation Ghanaian, um, it was always awkward sort of answering that question as compared to now where there's so many like, you know, now you see so many first generation Africans around, like everybody's more comfortable with themselves and like their culture. Um, but I feel like I always used to sort of avoid that question growing up just because of like, oh, there was just a lot of sort of like negative connotation and like stigma against being African or first generation African. So I would always start off saying, oh, I'm from Largo or I'm from Bowie, Maryland, instead of sort of talking like more about my culture and like, you know, where I am from. So yeah, I definitely feel like for me, it's based on like who's asking me and what the inflection is. Like last night I was at a triathlon and this guy is an older black man He's like, where are you from? And this was like way out north of Baltimore. So I'm like, okay, does he mean where are you from as in where are you driving from? Or like, where is your family from? So I kind of looked at him and was like, I'm from PG. Mm-hmm. He's like, wow, you came a long way for this race. And I was like, oh, well, I'm in Baltimore. And he's like, well, where's your family? So then it's like, it's mm-hmm. often that kind of conversation of, you know, at some point it does tend to lead back to heritage, but then sometimes it really is just like, where were you raised? 
Um, I know for me, I always feel like I get this weird thing with my voice too, where people are trying to place my voice where I'm from. Mm. But that happened a lot more when I was living in the Midwest, more so than mm-hmm. here. So here I feel more like they're curious because there is so many uh, people. I don't know if we mentioned this already, but we live in Baltimore. Um, so being in the DMV, there's so many people of different parts of the diaspora that I think people are genuinely like curious about your heritage. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I've lived in other parts of the country, it's more like, why don't you sound like you're from right. Lewis right now? <laughs> um, I'm curious when you lived in New Orleans, like was any of that <laughs> an issue or what do oh, people of think? Of course. <laughs> so I think also like how I look was like sort of push that question like, oh, where are you from? Like, you don't look like you're from here. That was a lot of New Orleans people. Like when I was in New Orleans, that was a common question I got, I guess, because of how I look like and the way I talk. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even like talking about uh, being like a first generation Ghanaian, a lot of people didn't really understand that concept a lot. It was very interesting how, you know, here it's so, like there's so like you're saying there's so many of us here in so many different cultures where this is more of like a normalized thing to to see first generation Africans first generation Ghanaians, but in in uh, New Orleans um, it's not and in the South so a lot of people were sort of having trouble sort of understanding well how are your parents from here? but she moved here like they, right. there was just so many you know questions after that and like how does that even happen like. Yeah, so it was just interesting seeing, like, living in different um, areas of the country, how that question is sort of formed. Like, I feel like in New Orleans, it was more of, like, how I look and how I talk and, you know. Yeah, and we should probably speak to the fact that we both were born and raised in PG, lived here pretty much our whole childhood. Mm-hmm. Our parents still live in the same house in Bowie. And we're living in Baltimore now, but we both kind of took different paths and went off to college, me in St. Louis, you in New Orleans and then like have come back to the area. So I think Mm -hmm. it's been, for me, it's been really interesting to think about like identity and how it's shifted based on having traveled so many other places and coming back to Baltimore, which is still a little bit different than PG. Mm -hmm. Um, I still think the DC area just has a wider swath of diaspora and people are like, oh, are you Ghanaian? Like sometimes I'll get a more specific question or are you Nigerian? Which is like, okay, trying to take a wild (laughs) guess based on how I appear. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I guess that leads into, you know, talking about where our parents are from. Um, they are from Ghana, but I'm curious when people ask where your parents are from, how do you tend to respond to that question? I actually go into more specifically, like my mom is from Cape Coast and my dad is from the Accra region. Um, and like I explain, there's a lot of sort of generalizations about like Ghanaian and African culture, like we all speak cheap. Or like that's the you know the main language of Ghana when my mom grew up speaking Fonti like that's her specific uh, language mm-hmm. so yeah like I try to be a little bit more specific because you know that's one sort of misconception about um, I feel like Ghana and Africa in general like regions are very different from each other mm-hmm. and like the way you grow up the things you eat it's still there may be like central things that you have but you know there's things that are cooked differently, done differently. Um, so yeah, I feel like, yeah, growing up, I always was very pretty specific about like where my parents were exactly from and everything. What about you? How did you? 
I mean, I think that's interesting because I don't know that I was that specific about it until I actually went to Ghana when, mm. so we both went to Ghana for the first time. Um, how old were you? 18? I was, I was like 15 or 16. No, because it was when I was in college, junior year. I was, no, I turned 21 in Ghana. So you were 18. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah. I thought that was senior. senior <laughs> it must have been your senior year. Oh, wow. Year. I thought it was my junior year, honestly. Yeah, so I think that's one of the things that made us kind of weird amongst our, like, African immigrant children peers growing up was they were always going to Ghana mm -hmm. during summer. And we just, I don't know, I've never asked mom, like, why didn't we go very much? I mean, so I studied abroad there and then you guys came to visit mm -hmm. while I was there. And so for both of us, it was our first, we were adults. Right. I guess you were 17. No, well, yeah, I was you were 17. very, yeah, I was still, I, I had to be, because I remember I did not, like, like drinkers. Yeah, yeah. That was the There's, first time. I don't even know. Yeah. I took a shot of liquid cocaine with dad. Huh? Like it was the drink was called liquid cocaine. So when I turned 21, I don't know if you remember. There's a picture of dad and I doing shots together. You mean at your like? At my birthday party. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. I, I didn't know what the shot was. Yeah. Doing, I was but... like, Dad, you gotta order liquid cocaine. I thought I was gonna say no, and then he was like, Yeah. I was like, What the heck is going on? Um, but where was I going with this? Yeah, I just think um, I wasn't really as attuned to the tribal differences, honestly, mm. growing up. And I think it wasn't until I was there and like traveled to like Ashanti land, traveled to Cape Coast and really saw mm -hmm. the difference. I think I had a sense just based on like, again, mommy speaking tree. I always knew mom speaks tree or Fonti, dad speaks tree, but then, you know, mom speaks tree with dad because right. dad is. The head that of the was house? an interesting yeah. concept too. Yeah, that you know he could not speak her language, but she could speak both, which maybe is a trend, uh, a bigger trend. But all that to say, I think that it took a while for me to really understand the nuance, and it wasn't until going there mm -hmm. that I felt like I had a concrete sense of where our family was from, um, and then just also seeing the difference. I spent a lot of time with Dad's family because mm. did you meet any of Mom's family when we were in Ghana? I know we visited her like home yeah. and we did, we, I think we met like, I want to say her aunt while we were there because we went to like, we spent like a, like a night or two in Cape Coast. Mm -hmm. We stayed at a hotel over there, but we visited her home and like, you know, oh, it was her, I think it's her cousin because I know her cousin still lives there. Yeah, I felt like with dad, I got a clearer sense of like, because I stayed with his great aunt mm -hmm. for a month and like lived with their family and got a really strong sense of like Ashanti culture. Whereas mm -hmm. with mom, we we didn't spend that much time in Cape Coast and I didn't get to go there with her. So that's something I would always oh, yeah. want to yeah. go back and explore. But, um, Yeah, all that to say, I think that there's a particular, and I write about this a little bit, but there's a particular legacy associated with Cape Coast and like the slave castles mm -hmm, and all right. that stuff. And so it was interesting to, when I was with my program, I was with a lot of black Americans who were really excited to go to Cape Coast because they wanted to explore the, like the history of the slave trade and mm -hmm. to be able to see these castles where they felt like some of their ancestors might have been traveled, traveled through. Um, and that was a really complex reckoning for me because we had spent so much time in Ashanti land right. talking about, you know, this was the bulwark of Ghana. And, you know, I'm sure they've narrated that history in their own way. Mm -hmm. But um, 
there was a lot of like, this is a stronghold. Like they didn't let go of the, like the, there's just so much heritage there that was about preserving mm-hmm. Ghanaian culture. And then when you get to Cape Coast, there's a sort of flip narrative where it's here are people who may have betrayed other right. folks' ancestors. And so that's something that I have never, you know, I just would love to go back and be able to kind of negotiate that history in my own way and kind of understand more mm-hmm. about our heritage. Because I think one of the myths that I tend to get around being of African descent is, oh, wow, you're so lucky. You must know your whole family's history. Right. And I'm like, actually, we did not talk very much about our family's history. I definitely feel like when our family came to the U.S., there was a split um, in the the narrative and in the ways that we talk about you know, uh, they, I think mm-hmm. they spent a lot of time just trying to sort of not defend us against American culture, but just like help us assimilate, but also yeah. um, not overexpose us to Ghanaian. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe it sometimes. No, yeah, I, I, yeah. I definitely feel that. And I feel like there's been little, like, as we're getting older, I've noticed amongst both of our parents, like they're saying they're now going over things with us, telling us like little things that, you know, they sort of tried to hide about, I guess, negative perceptions of Ghanaian culture that mm-hmm. they sort of didn't want us to see when we were younger. It's now, now they're just sort of being more open about, you know, everything within their families. And- yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's probably unusual about us, I always say unusual, but I'm never sure within the broader diaspora, we don't speak tree right. um, and we weren't raised to speak it. And it's, it feels pretty clear that that was a tension amongst our parents. I mm-hmm. think mom wanted us to definitely learn. Mm. She, I'm oh, really? pretty sure I talked to mom about this, that she wanted us to learn Tree and Fonti and dad was the one who said it would conflict with our like English. Really? I We can ask them after, but I'm like, nine, I would I would back that up. Mm. Um, maybe not that it would conflict with English, but that it just wasn't important, uh, that he didn't really value yeah. that and he didn't think it would be- Because we really weren't pushed at all. And then it's like, you know, when you're growing up, you know, there's there's like outbursts of, you don't understand this, but you're not even teaching us Yeah, this. it was very so, embarrassing. Like, like yeah. how do you learn from you just speaking? That's a common thing with, I feel like, amongst our parents, you know, we, we learn certain phrases here and there that we've grown up on, but... Okay, let's go through the phrases we learned. Doom lights. Doom It's just all negative phrases. Yeah, all negative, all what your. What do they mean? What'd you say? What do they mean? What is doom light and quat? Qua- turn off qua- the lights. Oh! <laughs> yeah, so it was like commands and then like you've been bad or right. you. is like foolish. Like your your kwasiya semi is just like a it's like a exaggeration of foolish like foolish girl, or... <laughs> um and so but I always felt very strongly that tree was our parents' private language. Mm-hmm. It was the language that they speak when they don't like. That's what's funny to when me they wanna... when they <laughs> don't want you to understand yes, something. I really think so, and I'm like I okay like. Now, when you're saying that they didn't want us to speak, that's what I, that's sort of like what came in my mind. Because whenever we're in trouble, there would be obviously them talking in Chi, so they'd know we don't understand. Yeah, so they'd be going off, and then your name would come up to so be like, Cosette, <laughs> Grace, <laughs> F. And it's just like, okay, we didn't need to learn Chi to know where something's gone wrong. 
But yeah. then it sort of flipped. I don't know. I, I promise you, I think this has something to do with mom uh, more so than dad. But I think some at some point she realized, oh, my God, I have these two adult children mm-hmm. who are leaving the house, who can't speak our language, who've only been to Ghana once and yeah. don't know how to cook any food mm-hmm. and just feeling like, yeah, man, the legacy cool. of our family wasn't being passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think she's made more of an effort with trying to tell us certain stories and yeah. introduce us to certain um family members but it it is something I spend a lot of time thinking about and part of why I think it is important to be able to go back with like the intention of gathering stories and information because it's so I think it's so easy to go back to Ghana and just chill and hang and it's a fun place to do that Mm -hmm. but um I also think there's sort of this generational loss that's gonna occur if we don't make a very strong effort to Mm -hmm. To preserve because so much of what it means to become an American is to be asked to forget mm-hmm. about your oh, history and to not. I mean, both of our parents have been in the U.S. for 40 years almost. Yeah, since the 80s. Or so, yeah, dad's been here. Early 80s. I can't I do math. Or he's here like. He's been here like almost 70. 50 years. Yeah. So wow. they've both spent twice as long here than they have in Ghana. So, and I think maybe less so than other families, they haven't. They probably only went back to Ghana like every five, six, seven years. Whereas we had a lot of friends, parents who went back every single year, moved there for months. So that was something different. Um, So sibling, in terms of being a sibling, um, what do you feel like the expectations of children our family were growing up and how are they different from what children of their families were expected to do? 4.0 4.0 do well <laughs> yeah I mean that was a big part of like conflict with at least from for me with our parents like my grades um so in high school I was pretty much like a b average b minus and this is like a you know this is a general conflict amongst most uh you know first generation Africans just immigrants, like, immigrants period in general yeah like but yeah I was like a b B minus student that was not okay and so there was just like a huge shift between like my sophomore year in high school where my parents sent me to boarding school like I had to also do another even though I didn't need to I had to do another year of uh, high school I basically got set back um because I had like literally a 3.0 average and, and dad would be like, you you won't even get into University of Maryland. Well, yeah, and there was so much discouragement on just, <laughs> it was so much pressure, so much discouragement on <laughs> just, like, grades and life in general. I had to, I couldn't even say bye to my friends, like, nothing. It was just literally, oh, yeah. like, a week, two weeks notice, I think. And, yeah, I, I actually distinctly remember, you know, we we may have, like, fought a lot in in when we were younger but there were times like these were like I remember distinct instances where you really helped me through them so the pressure of like grades and parents I remember when we were like all sitting at the dining table dining room table they told me I was going to boarding school I ran out and I remember you literally like coming and comforting me and like just you know trying to help me hold on to like just anything right and now, i said y'all suck yeah <laughs> and ran so... wait <laughs> you said that to their face yeah <laughs> they were being raggy 
Uh, we'll never cut that part out too. I, I, I said y'all are. <laughs> I'm giving that. <laughs> it was just like a really, really the expectation of always trying to do well was just, you know, an ongoing thing for a really long time for me at least. Um, and you know, boarding school, I always say it was like. Uh, it's like you go back and it was like bittersweet. Like, you know, I didn't want to be sent to the school. I didn't want to like have to, it, it was a military school, first of all. Like there was just so many things that were just like, um, and yeah, it was just a stark change, but it helped me actually, you know, not being, having my parents sort of being on my back all the time, just 24 seven me gain some sort of independence and I also had a close group of that's really when I sort of um got more just serious about learning more about my culture I had a close group of friends that all just happened to be first generation you know or immigrants or also African immigrants like first generation um and it was sort of like also just a comforting thing for me like being in this like such a negative space, but also at the same time being in a space where I could actually freely think a little bit more and have people around me that also do the same. And, yeah. Um, I mean, I always say only you could have survived that because <laughs> they knew if they had sent me, it would have been, you know, something crazy would yeah. happen. But I always felt like that was really upsetting. I mean, I remember when dad called, I don't know if I told, I think I told you, dad called me when I was in college, cause that was the first year I was in college. Um, and he called me, he was like, yeah, we're thinking of sending Cosette to military school. And I was like, don't do that. You'll destroy your trust with her forever. Did I tell you that? I, I think I, I wrote that in that. a story. I also wrote a story about that. No, but, yeah, I remember you told me. Um, yeah, I, it's just, they were so I think the the most challenging thing about these expectations is they were so linear about what success could look mm -hmm. like. Both of them are in medicine, very classic um, kind of immigrant pathways. Mm -hmm. Like I always tell people when right now I'm in a big uh, career transition space and feeling very kind of confused and overwhelmed. But whenever I try to um, explain why it's been so hard for me to navigate career stuff, I tell people like my parents both had the same job. My dad never mm -hmm. changed workplaces. Right. I mean, he would change location. He never had to get a new job. Mm -hmm. They're both in this sort of meritocracy. I know medicine has its challenges. I'm not trying to take away from that, but mm -hmm. where your intelligence is kind of directly valued, they didn't have to deal with a lot of office politics right. or like negotiating for certain things. Salaries are clear. I mean, there are just so many things that I feel weren't as, and I know it's a generational thing as well, but all that to say, they, what's interesting is people, they never pushed us to um, go necessarily into medicine, right? but it always did feel like you had to have perfect grades, mm -hmm. um, that there was never excuses. I remember um, just so many times where it'd be like, why did you get this grade? Oh, I didn't know what to do. Or, you know, a and there was never like, nothing would fly with them. Do you remember, I'm sorry. Do you remember in high school when I think you like, that was like the first bad 
report cards. Look, just as a disclaimer, you always do well at school. But I think there was like <laughs> one thing you didn't do well on or something. Oh, and when then you changed it. Yeah. Like in the basement and you were trying to. That's how serious it was. Like, yeah. So to explain further, so um, I was a very strong student, but similar to Cosette, I mean, it was just, I think what sucked was a lot of my natural love for learning was squashed by this sort of deepening anxiety about not performing perfectly and the tensions of school friends and it was always you know forget friends school is everything uh blood before friends like your friends will leave I mean mom would literally be like your friends will leave you behind only your sister is worthy and I'm just like what are you talking about but there was a lot of distractions they were never for that but um things started to get very challenging for me in high school where I just had the natural sort of performance dips. I like, you're allowed to not be great at everything. Um, I went to a science high school and for a while I kind of skated by. And then as time went on, math is not a thing you can keep skating by on, especially when you're bare. So I took pre-cal, I was like barely hanging on. Um, And then senior year, I took AP Calculus BC because everybody else was taking it. And I, that was the first year I drove to school. So I was always late. Mm -hmm. So I would be showing up as long as you showed up to first period that count you as present. So the class would end at 9.15. I would show up at like 9.13. Just to be counted as present. And so naturally the first, like the first um, few weeks or whatever, the first like, um, what is it called? Quarter progress thing came out and I had a D. And I was like, okay, I've slipped and slid, you know, a few times, but this is not cool. So I um, <laughs> photocopied I, my report card. I cut out a little A and I pasted it and copied it back and showed them. And so that kept them like off the trail. So question for you about that. Like, didn't you have to fix like the overall GPA? I mean, we were from the state oh, county. We're in the electronic and then the... Yeah, because it was a progress report. There was no GPA. Oh, yeah, just okay. Better grades. And so um, that worked for like a few weeks. And then one day, I think I had, when you missed school, they had just implemented this system where they would call your house. So one day I got to school after that first period bell or whatever. And so they called the school and left a message and like, Yasmin was absent today. And that threw them on the hunt. So by the time I got Uh, home, (laughs) they had started rummaging through myself. And I, this is like my fatal flaw. I just leave too much evidence. So they found the original report card with the taped on A. And I don't, I like, it's all black. Yeah, I don't remember. I just remember you were like telling me, I'm about to change. You know, you were in the the basement, like trying to change it around. And I was like, you know what? You got to do what you got to do. And it's because, I mean, I feel like, so to, I guess, return to the initial, like, question, like, you know, the biggest difference between our parents and other parents was a level of punishment. Mm-hmm. Like, there was always this threat of early on in life, I'll send you to Ghana, I'll send you to Ghana. And that didn't help us have a positive, that, to me, that's part of why it took us so long to kind of enjoy the idea of thinking about going to Ghana, because right. there was always that's the punishment. Very true. Yeah, and then we also had a cousin who um, was sent back to Ghana, like, Felicia. Oh, yeah. yeah, Like at a young age and just came back to the U.S. and like very much seemed just not, you know, she was kind of just always not, yeah, not really part of that family. So there was all this negative stuff around Mm -hmm. that choice. We had a cousin, um, Chris, who got sent to Ghana and like has to this day resents his, um, Mm -hmm. you know, cousin, Mm -hmm. uncle. Yeah. So 
then it was like just extreme punishment. Mm -hmm. Like I had an incident in middle school where I, I I should say, I am the bad sibling because that is a good sibling. That's just facts. That's, and I accept that. But so I was always doing well in school, but behavior wise, I was always on nonsense. So I created a burn book with a friend and it got found out. It was very embarrassing. When I'm telling you, so I got suspended from school for three days, which was the ultimate just disgrace. My parents were like, uh, like in a second, it was like, you're out of that school. They put me back in, they were going to put me in public school. And I was like, yay, finally, I can be around now. They'll see like what it actually is like to have bad kids around. Cause we always went to Christian schools. Mm. Um, but then they end up putting me back in Christian or different Christian school. And the whole year they told me like, you can't speak to anyone from the old school. If you see them in oh, public, no. don't look at them in the eye. Like there was a parent, <laughs> her mom went to the same gym. So one day oh, I wow. saw her and she was like, oh my God, Yasmin. This is like a parent from the school that I, so they didn't tell anyone I left. People were like messaging me like, where are you? Mommy and daddy would monitor the computer. I wasn't allowed to respond. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone just was like, what the hell happened? Like you disappeared off the face of the earth. Like I never said, similar to you, I never said goodbye to anyone. Um, so Taylor's mom saw me and she was like, oh my God, Yasmin, like, it's so good to see you. And I was like, uh, what are you doing? I, I was like, I, if I speak to her, I was looking around for mom and dad, like, oh my God, this is a parent. She never said I couldn't talk to a parent, but I was terrified. And she, like later on, I rekindled that friendship. Mm-hmm. And her mom was like, when I saw you, it was like, something was, I mean, it was scary. Like we didn't know whether we should like call someone or what was going on. Mm-hmm. So their punishments were always extreme. And it was yeah. always like, I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to even make new friends at Ascension. And then on top of that, we, I could only spend time with them. Mm-hmm. So for one year, it was like everything was a family event. Right. I had no friends. And that was the year before I went to high school. And so I think that to me was this big shift in distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, just opened up a lot of, I think before I'd always had this idea that, and I should say, I changed schools a lot right. uh, growing up. And that always kind of had this sort of sense of like, wait, why am I always being pulled out of school and put into another school? They never felt like they needed to explain things to us Mm -hmm. very well. It was always like, well, this is what we think is right. Right. And so as a kid, I think one of the difficulties growing up in the U.S. is when you can't make sense of stuff just because other kids are part of that process of Mm -hmm. like asking them what's wrong or asking them, you know, or telling them information. I always had this feeling of like, I can't trust these Mm -hmm. people. I never know what's going to happen next. So that kind of opened up this avenue where I, in all honesty, like spent most of high school lying, yeah. being secretive, doing stuff, saying one thing, doing another. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that took a long time to kind of, even now, I mean, I compulsively, sometimes yeah. I just lie because it's just like, I, mean, I don't know if the truth is valuable yeah. here. So. Yeah. I hear that. Do you want to ask the next question? Sure. So, what did being a sibling mean to you growing up? Um, so I will, I always stand on this. I was the only oldest growing up. So okay. just me and you as sisters. And then mom is the youngest, um, kind of. Both of our parents had very complex family situations where their parents got remarried. Um, dad's mom or dad's dad had mom many... is the youngest, but she acts like an oldest sibling though. 
in a, in this in a weird way. But sorry. Yeah, uh, mom is complex because she is she's the youngest in her sort of family of two. Like her, she only has one fully oh, yeah. like full sister, but she has a lot of, of half siblings. Mm -hmm. So she gets to kind of play both roles. But um, and then dad was the youngest ish of many siblings. Mm -hmm. Um, so they had a lot of expectations about what it meant to be an older sibling. And there was always a sort of feeling of setting an example and needing to like be nicer and be more friendly and just, and just set high standards. And I felt also like, wow, nobody understands what it's like to be the first one trying to navigate. The I guess. The, what? I like that. I'm just it was a lot of pressure. <laughs> I think that they eventually sort of became more focused on you. But I think initially there was a lot of pressure on me to sort of hold up a standard. Because it really felt to me because that like once I got into high school, they were still paying vague. But that's when they started to kind of narrow in on your shit. And I was like, oh, OK, this has shifted. I felt like the shackles were free from me. But I don't know. How did you experience it then? Pressure. Because I feel like. Honestly, I feel like for me, it was always there. There was always a pressure to sort of, you know, yeah, yeah, you always did well in school. You're always like, sort of like, you know, you had your issue. Obviously, you've had your issues with mom and dad, but it was very weird because simultaneously, you would have all these like conflicts with them, but then you would be this like, to them, you're like this model sibling at the same time. Like, but only um, academically. I always was a behavioral problem. And that felt yeah, worse to true. me, honestly. Well, I feel like academically, <laughs> my life, everything that shifted in my life was because of academics, like yeah. dramatically. So I think that was a lot of pressure on me to always, like mommy was constantly in my ear, always, you know, reminding me, are you doing well? Yeah, like everything was sort of a, had to be a comparison. Like I don't even, even like, I mean, I feel like it's veered off now, but even to this day, sometimes it's still like, has Yasmin been here? Has she done this? Like, can, you can only do it if Yasmin's done it, basically. And so there was always sort of this just pressure to like, oh, I have to do this exactly like Yasmin did, or I have to, you know, I can only do this the way Yasmin did, or mom, you know, it, it was just always there sort of in the back of my mind of like, you know, I yeah. feel like that, I mean, I agree. I mean, that sucks because I felt always growing up like it was important to me to, my thing was always, let me try and break some of these behavioral or like social barriers so that you can have more freedom than I did. Like just in terms of like being able to spend time with friends or have mm. birthday parties or go to sleepovers. And right. like, there were a lot of things that I, I mean, the things I remember, which now kind of sound childish, but like, writing a three-page letter about why we needed scooters mm. and like so you I got a scooter and then you got a scooter or just these little things that I felt like they didn't value or think were important as particularly around American culture yeah. that I always was like let me like figure out how we can how I can get them I felt like those were a lot of the battles that I fought with them mm -hmm. how can you That's understand true. why friendship is important or why relationships are valuable outside of just our family yeah. or even just little things like going to dances mm -hmm. and being you know the first one to experience some of that stuff um but I also felt like you were at least the athletic one growing up and that was something that they valued and thought was important too yeah 
I agree. But also I felt, I mean, I, I love tennis. I still do. But I also felt that, like that was sort of a part of it. Like, okay, if I'm not doing well academically, like there has yeah. to be something that I, to get them off of me that they're like satisfied with. And that was really like, I generally loved tennis, but that was also because of them. Like there was such a push to do this and like, you know, th- that was sort of like the thing they, you know, looked at me as like, okay, cause it's doing good in this. Like yeah. she's always going to be doing good in this. And so, yeah, it just always felt like I loved it. Like it was a passion for me, but at the same time, it's like, this is something to literally keep my parents off my back right. and like stop, you know, this is also something where I feel like I can find like a common like ground or thing with them. Cause I feel like, you know, growing up, like again, like academics with dad, like that was a whole just conflict and fight. Yeah. And just, you know, but tennis, like he would always take me to tennis lessons. He would, you know, he would always come to my games. Like that was sort of something that like, help me feel a little bit more connected to him in that way but yeah yeah I mean I can definitely say too like I think they always have this idea that I'm very self-motivated which Mm -hmm. I am but what they don't realize is I was self-motivated to get out of their house yeah I mean everything like I so like I mentioned once they I had that thing with them in middle school where I felt like they betrayed me they've destroyed all my friendships Uh, You know, it was like a vendetta for years. I'm so serious. Like, so I went to a magnet high school and Mm -hmm. you had to take a test. I was upsetting for that test, not because I love studying, because I was like, I'm going to go to public school or I can do whatever the hell I want. And then once I got into that school, it was like, I'm going to go to the best college. It's going to be free. Um, I was just telling this to one of my students or someone like, I remember when I got into colleges, like, yes, I had a lot of options, but, you know, some of them were more prestigious but very expensive because of our family's income level Mm -hmm. and I was like literally had my finger on the click button for a school that was not a good fit at all like nothing about it was anything like the kind of person I am I'm very liberal artsies northeastern oh nothing wrong with northeastern great school but Mm -hmm. it's a pre sort of professional school Mm -hmm. it's all about co-ops and I was like I'm accepting this now screw everything else because it was free Mm -hmm. like I had a full like everything was going to be covered And mommy was the one who was like, what are you doing? Like, slow down. Like, we can... So where I ended up going was a place that was full tuition, but they still had to pay moving forward. Even that, I was like, God, if anything, if they turn on me... Every year I was turned. Yeah, Yeah, just... It was just so much distrust between us. So I think they always thought, oh, Yasmin's really self-motivated, and she just, you know, does well in school. Everything was a hustle of, like, I have to get from under their feet. I cannot be beholden to them and I know that was um something we were talking about earlier just in terms of like expectations around our careers and stuff like that but that I was always interested in the arts and I felt like they supported that but I never again had that trust so I was like wow if I'm not doing pre-med are they gonna keep paying for my room and board or do can I I mean I did not communicate with them about anything I was doing in college very transparently because I just didn't know what would happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know what switched in college. I think there were periods of college where I stopped speaking with them for months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once they realized that the power balance had shifted, and like this is an adult that you can't just mm. say, you know, whatever you want to. And I mean, that's my theory. I don't really know the truth of how things shifted where I didn't feel as vulnerable. Yeah. But I did always feel like that drive I had was 
driven by fear and anxiety mm-hmm. of like, I have to be successful or I'm always going to have this just uncertainty around my family and punishments and, you know, just not feeling very safe, honestly. Yeah. yeah. But I think in one, you know, weird positive of that is like, and this is honestly what I've always looked up to you for is you don't care. Like you'll go, like if you're trying something, you will go through with trying it. Like whether if you may have anxiety doing it, you may like go back and forth, but I feel like you always push the boundary of, you know, what they think that you should do and like what you actually want to do. And I think that's something that's, you know, gotten to gotten you where you are today. Like it's gotten you to, literally like to try and like successfully do all the things you wanted to do so yeah I feel like in a weird way that was sort of like a positive that helped you like pushed you to be this independent person you are but also like you just try things you never like looked back and said this was bad for me to try like you've always tried and gone through with them like no matter how risky you think they are like so. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I feel like these are the complexities of growing up in a household where you don't really agree with the parenting style, but it still had positive results Yeah. for you. Because right. um, yeah. I think that's how we probably would both describe it. And I don't think either of us would be like, I mean, we love our parents to death. I don't know if that's come across like in this call. We love them. They're amazing <laughs> parents. <laughs> Um, we spend a lot of time with them. We have so much, I think as adult children, oh my God, it's like so different and amazing Mm -hmm. to be their kids. But that period from honestly, middle school through college low key was tough. Um, and let's see, I think, um, maybe that relates to how our relationship would have been different if we had grown up in Ghana instead of in the U S we were just talking about this, like, I just feel like we wouldn't, so much of what was tough about our childhood was the cultural tension. Mm -hmm. It was American kids do this and you want us to do that. Mm. And to me, that's where a lot of the issues came from. I mean, friends was always the big thing. Why why do you need to see your friends? Mm -hmm. What is a friend doing for you? Are the friends studying? Does the friend have good grades? Like, just, I mean, I had a close friend who was, I think I've told you this, um, Bonquillo, like who was Sierra Leonean growing up in, what was this, elementary school. And it started off where I was allowed to be her friend because I was tutoring her. <laughs> and then it was like, she got suspended or something bad happened to her at school. She was a great, like she was fun. She just had a heart. She had a lot of tensions with teachers. Mm. But then I was like, oh, well, you can't have a friend who was suspended. So then she's like, don't talk to her. And it was like, they would say stuff like that. Don't talk to this person. And it's like, how am I supposed to go to school and not speak to someone? And why? Like, there were just a lot of things. Maybe I, I don't know if you felt like that. No, I agree with you. But I don't like to talk like too much in detail. Like if I, me and my friends are having like, like there was a period of time where he didn't like, like Mia and Candy. (laughs) Just because I was like having like conflicts with them. It's just interesting how they don't understand the nuance or at least before. They didn't really understand the nuance of friendships here. It's yeah. like, you can have a disagreement with somebody or, you know, they might say something to you that you don't like, but it's so, like, you can get over it too. So I always was very skeptical about talking about friends and just, you know, boys or just, like, relationships even still. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I just don't 
like to go in too much detail. Yeah, I definitely feel like, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know what would have been specifically different how we grown up in Ghana, but I definitely think there would have been a lot more legacy to uphold or yeah. focus on in terms of the schools and like who we would have been around, mm -hmm. which would have been interesting. Um, but our parents met in the U.S. And so that's something I never really think about that because I always have such an attachment to the story of them meeting in New York City. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's funny because people will often be like, oh, like your parents must have got married and moved here. I'm like, oh, no, they met in the U.S. And people are like a surprise. Like, oh, my God, yeah. two Ghanaians in the U.S. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, like probably most in New York. Yeah. So um, I, I do think it would be interesting to consider what would have happened if we had at least gone back to Ghana more often or seen it as more of a haven or because I think what was so amazing about going as adults was the fact that like, wow, this place, I mean, I don't even think we knew Ghana had beaches. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't give us any you image yeah. of anything besides villages. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, oh, like I'm chilling in Osu and like hanging out and going clubbing and going, I mean, I had more fun partying in Ghana than I did in college. Mm, yeah. And so I wonder what it would have felt like to have that positive image earlier on yeah because we definitely had family friends who did take their kids to ghana a lot more often and their kids would be like pumped to go mm -hmm. and i feel like it was always a bit of a mystery yeah to us what was there something else that makes me you know think about this is um <laughs> like food so i was telling mom actually the other day we were just talking about like watching mm -hmm. which is like you know um rice and beans but yeah it's a Ghanaian like staple and so I was like telling mom, like, you know, you didn't cook this for me until, or like, I wasn't exposed to this until we went to Ghana. Like, I remember oh, wow, I was yeah. like getting my hair braided, and then the lady, the woman who was braiding my hair, she was, she was getting some wache like from a vendor, and I just never like that was when my love for, for of course, like, grew. But yeah, it was just interesting how. Even food-wise, I think there was certain foods that, like, mom would cook, but she hadn't, I didn't really get exposed to, like, all, like, Ghanaian foods and uh, until we actually physically went to Ghana. And I, I remember asking her, like, why didn't you, you know, wh why didn't you cook this earlier on? Or, like, why didn't, why didn't you expose me to this earlier? And I was always, yeah, she, she didn't really have an answer, but she, it was just interesting how there were some things they would always... There were certain staples or Ghanaian food staples that they would, she would always cook, but yeah, just like yeah. That. I mean, I think what people think about. I'm curious how this is because I feel like you have more friends in the diaspora than I do by far. But mm -hmm. I feel like when I think about who we grew up around, because we should say we grew up in very embedded in a Ghanaian American community. Mm -hmm. Like there were all of our parents' friends are Ghanaian, pretty much, with except for like a few people. So we would go to these parties and events and stuff all the time, but I would say we were probably the most Americanized mm, family yeah. by far. And I still believe I think so. that had a lot to do with dad because yeah. dad's family was very wealthy in Ghana and like a lot, very assimilated mm. um, and just had, you know, dad always talked about like, oh, Peace Corps workers who would, he knew some brand Peace Corps worker from America, maybe that, I, maybe I made this up, but like, that that was his first sort of image of the US and kind of wanting to come up here. Um, but then also like the fact that dad eats fufu with a spoon and like has all these bougie, 
and you know half his family has British accent so there's this kind of like man that's so true yeah (laughs) yeah dad is like bougie like low-key and also just we should say like even sorry no you know what mom and dad are mom and dad both eat very distinct ways so I noticed that dad was always commenting on like what mom eats yeah gunian food like she I feel like she's more of like I don't know how to explain it. She eats a wider range of foods than dad does, I feel like, like with Ghanaian foods. And he's sort of always, I've noticed that he like jokes and like criticizes, like, why are you eating it like that? Why are you like, it's just always- Like the way she eats with her hands? Yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the way, dad went to very fancy Ghanaian school as well. Like mm. that was like with British, he, was around nuns a lot. I don't know like how that compares to mom, but my sense was always that he just had a more privileged colonial upbringing. Mm. Um, And then I also think about the fact that he spent 20 years in the US kind of doing his own thing before really settling down. Like Mm -hmm. he came here for med school and so he lived in Mississippi and then Rhode Island, Nebraska. He lived probably like six or seven different states before settling in Maryland. And it's also um, interesting how a lot of those areas weren't places where you would see like first generation immigrants or like yeah, you know, especially very, at the time. Yeah. So I think that he kind of created his own ideas about what it would be like to raise children. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen this book on his bookshelf. He has this book called Raising Black Children, <laughs> and I've always been like, I wonder how this informed. And we should say our dad is very like studious. He has a big yeah. library. He likes reading, and he's the kind of person that will like read a bunch of stuff and be like, here's my philosophy right. on X. Yeah. So I've always wondered how much it was dad's sort of decision making influence of like, I'm gonna raise these kids to be very American mm. and assimilated and not really thinking about a sort of bicultural character. That's always been my theory. Yeah. Like, I don't think dad's ever been the one to be like, oh, you should learn tree or we should go I've to Ghana. Known, yeah, it's always mommy, honestly. Yeah, definitely. So I think and a lot of that probably has something to do with gender and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, I there's a lot to explore. I mean, I think it again goes back to the thing of like, we don't really know a lot about these decision-making moments or what influenced how they decided to parent. Mm. But we, I think as much pressure as we were under, we probably had a lot more social flexibility than almost all of our peers. Mm-hmm. Like there was some people like, we never got to go to sleepovers. We never had parties. Yeah. We definitely yeah, kind of did what we wanted. That's so interesting because Bunkio's kids will not be going to sleepovers at other people's houses. (laughs) In today's day and age. Yeah, exactly. Now there's just so much worse stuff happening. (laughs) So if you're part of that tiny 90s window of good stuff. Um, So how would you say our relationship has evolved as we've grown? We like each other. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like before it was like, we would fight so often, like we were siblings, but always it was like moments of like when we were fighting with mom and dad, that's when yes, we bond together. Yes. And that's when we have like- Against a common enemy. Basically. Yeah. Like we're just trying to save both of our asses. Yeah. So we have to, li- we literally like, it was just an in- instinct to like literally bond together, do what we had to do, always like check in with each other. But I feel like there was just so many constant like, 
fights that we had when we were younger and just like yeah just crazy disagree yeah i think a lot of it was just not understanding the pressures of the other siblings yeah like me being very much like i'm the oldest you don't mm -hmm. know how hard it is to have to deal with mom and dad's like constant wrath and obviously you felt like the academic wrath yeah. as well but it was never the same there i think it wasn't until you were older that we were facing the same kind of pressure which mm -hmm. was just them being super restrictive and harsh or mm -hmm. saying things that were just not great yeah. and trying to i'm trying to think of like a common or sort of common moment of like i think it was literally the shift. i was just trying to i think it was the shift one of when i like when you went to college and when i went to boarding school yeah i i i feel like that was the shift of like our relationship turning more like positive and sisterly like, yeah that was sort of a very because you were shifting you were thinking about a whole different career and i remember we were like when we did talk on the phone like that was a i remember like you were shifting into like women's studies and sociology like there were there was so like we were both sort of in these weird spaces yeah and we rely on each other a lot and like talk to each other a lot about how we were gonna get through them and talk to mom and dad about them and i think that also i feel like because we lived in so many different spaces like traveling was a big thing that brought us together right. like traveling just us two i remember like when we went to spain like that was a huge like you know start in the shift of like our relationship becoming like much more positive and like and just sisterly. not as impacted by mom and dad yeah. i think what was ironic was they were so like sisters need to bond yeah. together and i feel like that just made us like yeah, say like, no yeah and we we are both really good friends <laughs> yeah. of like other people as in we both have extraordinary friendships i think in an unusual way and mom always comments on that like mm -hmm. you guys are great friends to your friends so all that to say, like, I had a lot of focus on my friends growing up and yeah. you had a lot of focus on your friends. Yeah. And that was always something that was like, I don't really need to be bonded with my sister because I have friends. That always felt like the tension right. to me, mm -hmm. um, like our individual social lives that yeah. we were focused on. So I think that once we both were adults and like could drink together right. and travel and be independent, then that became more of on the plane of friendship, mm -hmm. which just wasn't like we're three years apart. I don't think we ever said that but um you know there's a while where like i was 21 but you're still under 21 and then or when i was an adult you were still a kid and so there were these moments where you couldn't really like cross really? that barrier but i do remember actually one of the moments that i don't know if you remember when you came to st louis that oh was probably God, yeah that was also time. yeah because that no, was yeah, a big effort was... <laughs> Yeah, I oh, was, the summer trip. Yeah, yeah, that was a good trip because I was 19. I was working at Panera, living on campus for the summer because I never wanted to come home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I came. What home. was it called? Bread Co. Yeah, St. Louis Bread Company. <laughs> um, and I remember, you know, mom and dad bought you a ticket, but then it was kind of like I think they might have sent you like a hundred dollars or something. Like, figure it out. Like, take care of your sister. And mom and dad, I feel like they had no idea. Like what we were doing yeah. and I was like oh I'm gonna take her to the Black Eyed Peas concert oh. I saved up for that and like 
we went we went to the moolah the theater with the couches and stuff yeah. um but that was the first time i was like i'm gonna put together experience like so my sister because that was the after your first year of boarding school yeah. and i remember just thinking she deserves to have like an amazing time screw mom and dad like yeah. i'm gonna show her that life is fun once you get to a certain age yeah um and it was like yeah. i feel like you had a great college no, experience was, and things yeah. like that yeah no i definitely agree and yeah, that was such a, I didn't even, what she said, I was like, wow, that was literally like a distinct time for us, like where we were really bonding and just, we literally felt no pressure from anything. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the funny thing about, I think it's definitely something I will take into, I mean, I don't know at this point if I'm going to have kids or become a parent, but. I always, I don't know how you felt, but I always had this strong feeling that I wouldn't want to have two children because I felt like it was too much pressure to like mm. bond with this. Like mom and dad just always like, you guys need to be together. No, I feel the opposite of that. Well, like I also- Now, right? It's well, like great, but as kids. Well, no, well, no, actually. So I felt like, so for me, I I didn't know what I was gonna do if I didn't have a sibling. Like imagine like if we <laughs> did not have each other to try to I don't even know what would have happened. Yeah. Like and so now I'm like not even I'm I feel the same. I'm not sure I want kids. But I remember when I was younger, I was like, if I have kids, they have to have another. There has to be two. <laughs> yeah. Like because one needs like literally if you know this is how we grew. This is you know there were so many instances that we didn't obviously tell mom and dad about that we were yeah. like all of our secrets like everything we always told each other like even when we were fighting a lot like whatever we always like held that to each other to yeah. tell each other everything to like you know lean on one another and so I always felt like when I was thinking about like okay you know what it isn't like I was always saying like okay there has to be two children because I know my kids are probably not going to tell me everything yeah, and they need to rely real. on somebody. Yeah. Like they need to have somebody who's always going to have their back and, you know, whether they like each other or not, you know, there's that person for them. So that's deep. Yeah. I always thought I'd have one or four children. Oh my God. Cause I was like, no, cause I was like, three is awkward. Someone's yeah. going to be left out. Although I've changed my mind about that recently, but then I was like, Oh, well, when you have one kid, the only children are always close to their parents. But yeah. they're also, they can be weird. Yeah, and I feel like, yeah. So, and then I just don't want to have four kids, let's be honest. So that's why, right now, mm. who knows? Yeah, <laughs> who knows now? I don't know if I want to have children. Yeah. But I was like, if I do, I'll have two. Because two is the magic number. Hey. Okay, so the last question. What? Oh, we were already talking about this. Uh, what expectations around siblinghood do you hope to keep and pass on to future generations i guess the expectations part mm -hmm. is well, different i mean i'll honestly say the same thing like always tell your like transparency like tell your sibling everything like it doesn't matter how hard it's gonna be i feel like with everything that we've both sort of gone through we've always been transparent about like what is going on and you know, we've always given advice to each other and just support, like, even when we didn't have the answers to things, well, we, we provide support for each other. So I feel like just being, like, completely and just just honest and, you know, open with your, with your sibling is really 
something I want to pass on. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because I think when I think about parenting style, like so much of why we are the siblings we are is because of this sort of distrust of <laughs> like, I can't trust our parents. Yeah. So I'm going to have to tell you like, hey, I'm sneaking out you know, right? if I'm dead. <laughs> like, at least you knew where right. I was. But, you know, I don't want to, I guess, you know, it's interesting for me to start thinking about with friends who did have trusting relationships or good relationships with their parents, there was all this like sibling tension. Mm. Um, that's something I feel that's is very it. grateful. Yeah, I don't have, we don't have any adult, obviously, yeah. you know, have disagreements, but we don't have that sort of adult, like I know people who just really don't like their sibling mm -hmm. or don't, Talk to them yeah, like which is so like, you know, that would suck. Um, so I honestly don't know. I think as an oldest person myself, I would definitely try to be mindful of it, that difficult balance of like setting up the older sibling for success, and, but not pressuring them and also not comparing mm -hmm. younger sibling. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just at a friend's house for a week and she has a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And it was so, it helped me understand so much of how and why things felt the way they did when I grew up. Because, you know, the four-year-old is obviously can do so much more and has so much more reasoning skills than the two-year-old. So when they're like fighting, she's only telling like the oldest one, like, hey, stop, you can't do that. Mm. And she's trying to make sense of it. Like, well, but my little sister just punched me. Why can't I punch her back? And, you know, to that four-year-old brain, it just feels like everything's unfair. Mm. And I think that right. was a theme growing up. Oh, this is unfair. Mm -hmm. why, can I, why do I have to have this responsibility? But I think I always attributed that to our family's heritage. And now I'm like, it's just hard to yeah. differentiate how you raise children of different ages and there's always going to be some expectations right um so i have a lot more empathy i think for that than i did growing up but um all that to say you know i have no idea how parenting works or what's successful i do yeah. know overall i mean just the pressure did not feel very useful yeah um, it was, i don't think it was very useful. yeah <laughs> it's hard because i mean we can't say what we would be like Right. without it but exactly. I also just can't see a way in which I would Be apply myself. that level of pressure yeah. to any kid mm. um it's hard because America is not an easy place and I think we're at an age where we're kind of cresting on like understanding like oh wow yeah if you don't have this level of drive it's very easy to not have anything mm -hmm. here and to just live a difficult life yeah um and we're beneficiaries of a lot of privilege mm -hmm. right but it just doesn't feel sustainable to have another generation that's sort of like wrestling against so many structures mm -hmm. from within when there's already so much to battle outside right. of your family's home. So that's, yeah, complicated question. Yeah. Anything else, Tim? I don't think so. Well, I'm glad you're my sister. I'm glad you're my sister. Love you. Love you too. <laughs> Why is Cosette looking a little uncomfortable? <laughs> I do love her. Oh, Nance, I was going to come and say something sweet, but now you just broke the mood. It's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yasmin and Cosette, for sharing with us and sharing with each other. This was a really beautiful conversation. 
um, and you feel privileged to um, have been a part of it. It's also really interesting, I think, Cosette, for me, like knowing you through the Yasmin prism. And so like hearing some, you know, I've heard bits and pieces of some of the stories before and I've heard about Yasmin's philosophy about the eldest and <laughs> and child order and, and the expectations that come with that. Um, and so it's really interesting to see how like, you know, her thinking has changed on that, evolved a bit um, and how she's put the shoe on the other foot. Is that what you say? She's put her foot in your shoe. So she knows, you know, to try and understand a little bit about what it means to walk in your place. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah.